Section 4 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mickey Lee Rich. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morrell. Section 4. The History from Behind the Veil. How came England to be mixed up in this Congo business? How did King Leopold come to hold the position he now does? How is it that all this oppression and atrocity has only begun to be realized within a comparatively recent period by the general public? Those are three questions which are constantly being asked us. Detailed answers to the first two are to be found in one or two publications. They will be restated here. The answer to the third question is a more difficult and a somewhat delicate one to handle, but as a great deal of misconception exists on the subject, misconception which has done harm to the cause of the Congo natives here at home, and especially abroad, it seems advisable to deal with it frankly and at once, not from the standpoint of the critic, but from that of the recorder of facts. People who suppose that the atrocities of King Leopold's African enterprise are a relatively new phase in the history of that enterprise are mistaken. But the mistake is natural. Those atrocities have been recorded in one unbroken stream since 1892 and even earlier, but they have not, in the main, been publicly accessible until recently. Slowly have they emerged into the light. Some are still coming out. Others continue to be hidden. Nothing even approximating to the whole truth will ever be known. The reasons for this are various. Parliamentary apathy, comprehensible from the absence of information. Sir Charles Dilke, who as everyone knows, takes a deep interest in the welfare of the African races, brought the general treatment of those races, and especially the Congo races, before Parliament in April 1897. He suggested an international conference and was supported by Mr. Sidney Buxton, Sir George Baden-Powell, and Mr. John Dillon. From then to the great debate in May 1903, a space of six years, I cannot find that the Congo was mentioned in Parliament otherwise than by some chance and rare question and answer. The Attitude of the British Government In that interval, the British government received a number of reports from British officials and officers in or adjacent to the Congo both as regards the general treatment of the natives in the country and as regards the treatment of British colored subjects employed in different capacities on the Congo. So numerous were the latter reports that a year previous to Sir Charles Dilke's early initiative, Mr. Chamberlain, replying to Mr. J.A.P.'s, stated in the House that he had prohibited the recruiting of laborers by King Leopold's agents in the British West African colonies. The nature of the reports may be gauged from Mr. Chamberlain's own words. Complaints have been received of these British subjects having been employed without their consent as soldiers and of their having been cruelly flogged and in some cases shot. I have been told and I believe the statement is true that Mr. Chamberlain, as a consequence of the frequency and nature of these reports, did his utmost to induce the cabinet, but without success, to assume the rights of extraterritoriality on the Congo secured to Great Britain under the convention with King Leopold of 1884. In its notes to the powers of August 8, 1903, arising out of the resolution passed by Parliament in the May debate, the government referred to both classes of reports. The note says, 
Moreover, information which has reached His Majesty's government from British officers in territory adjacent to that of the state tends to show that notwithstanding the obligations accepted under Article 2 of the Berlin Act, no attempt at any administration of the native is made, and that officers of the government do not apparently concern themselves with such work, but devote all their energy to the collection of revenue. The natives are left entirely to themselves so far as any assistance in their government or in their affairs are concerned. Begin footnote. That is to say, assistance in their own internal administration. End footnote. The Congo stations are shunned, the only natives being seen soldiers, prisoners, and men who are brought into work. The neighborhood of stations, which are known to have been populous a few years ago, is now uninhabited, and the immigration on a large scale takes place to the territory of neighboring states. The natives usually averring that they are driven away from their homes by the tyranny and exaction of the soldiers. In connection with British-colored subjects, the note, after referring to the disadvantage under which His Majesty's government have further labored, owing to the fact that British interests have not justified the maintenance of a large consular staff in the Congo territories, goes on to state that a consul of wide African experience, Mr. Casement, was appointed to reside permanently in the state, but that his time had been principally occupied in the investigation of complaints preferred by British subjects, and that he had not been able, therefore, to travel in the interior for the purpose of studying the general condition of the natives of the country. Mr. Casement's advices, the note proceeds, disclosed in connection with these complaints, examples of grave maladministration and ill-treatment occurring in the immediate vicinity of Boma, the seat of the central staff. The whole of these official reports were suppressed lock, stock, and barrel, and they have never been made public, although Mr. Alfred Emmett pressed for the production in the parliamentary debate of 1904. Begin footnote. I should say here that Mr. Alfred Emmett and Mr. Herbert Samuel have rendered the greatest services to the cause of the Congo natives. Humanity owes them a great debt of gratitude. End footnote. The British government contented itself with making private representations to King Leopold through H.M. Minister in Brussels, the farcical Commission for the Protection of the Natives, and sundry bogus judicial reforms, coupled with an intensified period of oppression being the sole results. The Silence of the Missionary Societies As will be shown in Section 2 of this volume, there had been an accumulating in the decade 1892-1902 in some of the Protestant mission stations of the Upper Congo records of a comprehensible and appalling character. Enough information was available to have stormed every religious platform in this country. The home executives of the missionary societies took no public action. However, and for many years one Congo missionary, and one only, dared to confront with the righteous indignation of a spirit stung to passionate anger by the fearful evidence of his own eyes, King Leopold's agents in Africa, and King Leopold himself in Europe. He was a Swede. His name was Hyablum, and he stands out an apostolic figure in those early days. His pendant of later times in energy and determination is John Harris and Mrs. Harris, of whose courage in Africa and self-sacrifice in Europe it would be impossible to speak too highly. Two other missionaries followed in his footsteps, a Virginian and an Irish-American. 
With those three exceptions, no missionary appears to have given expression to his experiences in a form available to the general public until October 1903 when Mr. J.H. Weeks, with whom I had come in touch through a mutual friend, sent me the first of his powerful communications. A number complained locally to the officials and did and have always done all they could do for the natives. The home executives, or some of them, made private representations to King Leopold. So far as the Roman Catholic missions are concerned, neither the home executives nor the missionaries on the field made any public statement until this year after the publication of the report of the Commission of Inquiry. We know now that some of the Roman Catholic missionaries, like some of the Protestant brethren, complained locally to the officials. The home executives may have made representation to the king. Begin footnote. That great pressure was brought to bear upon the Roman Catholic missionaries to keep silence is not, I think, doubtful. Speaking in the Belgian House on March 1st, M. Kolfs, a Catholic member of the Parliament, said, Our missionaries are expected to keep silence. As the Bien public has so well put it, optimistic statements are alone tolerated from them. There is therefore a gag. The gag is only placed in the mouths of Belgian missionaries, and it was to ensure this result that the Congo state urged the Vatican to agree that Catholic evangelization on the Congo should be confined exclusively to Belgium. This utterance is the more notable since M. Kolfs was the spokesman in the debate of the religious missions. End footnote. From the end of 1903, when the testimony of British and American missionaries became continuous, detailed, and insistent, the organs of the Roman Catholic missions and the Roman Catholic religious press generally attacked the former with great bitterness. This attitude was dictated by the Vatican Direct, doubtless under the influence of King Leopold's assurances that the British movement disguised an attack upon the Roman Catholic Church, a legend which the king's agents were particularly active in propagating through the Roman Catholic world in the United States. Begin footnote. When in the fall of 1904 I visited the United States with the dual mission of addressing the International Peace Conference at Boston on the Congo question and presenting a memorial to President Roosevelt signed by a number of public bodies and influential public men, which mission I carried out, I found myself, greatly to my astonishment, opposed by Cardinal Gibbons, head of the Roman Catholic Church in that country. The open correspondence which passed between His Eminence and myself is published in the official organ of the Congo Reform Association for November 1904. End footnote. This attitude was maintained until the appearance of the report of the Commission, when it underwent a complete change, at least as regards the Belgian religious orders and organs. I have said that this is not a criticism, but a statement of fact and I pass no opinion on the silence thus observed, either in defense or stricture, contenting myself with the remark that, as in the case of the British government, it delayed by many years the manifestation of the truth. Begin footnote. The Italian government also possesses an enormous number of reports from its officers in the Congo army, but they are of more recent date. The German, French, Danish, and Swedish governments also possess reports. End footnote. King Leopold's Active Opponents Until the parliamentary debate of May 1903 found all political parties so impressed with unofficial testimony and exposition as to be united in demanding from the British government a definite invitation to the powers for the convocation of the International Conference, the active opponents of the existing regime on the Congo 
were to all intents and purposes the Aborigines Protection Society and myself. Who says Aborigines Protection Society? Says Mr. H.R. Foxborn. So that there were only two men really to reckon with. When Mr. Foxborn, under the auspices of his society, organized a public meeting at the Mansion House in 1902 and to hear the American missionary Morrison in 1903, he could always count upon Sir Charles Dilk, whose pen was not inactive in the cause, and other distinguished members of the society. But the persistent hammering at the public, without which no movement can hope to make headway, and indispensable individual proselytizing, this was left almost entirely to Mr. Foxborn and myself. Mr. Foxborn, a long way ahead in point of time, for I only came on the scene in 1899 or 1900 while he, tired of making representations to King Leopold, had approached the British government in the name of his society as far back as 1896. Mutually convinced of one another's integrity and purpose, but working on wholly independent and slightly different lines, we were terribly handicapped. Begin footnote. Mr. Foxborn, emphasizing more particularly perhaps the atrocious nature of the deeds committed, while my endeavor from the first was to show that given certain premises, the repudiation of native rights in land and in the produce of soil and the destruction of trade as the basic factor in a relationship between the European and the native in tropical Africa, of which this repudiation was the logical accompaniment those deeds must of necessity take place. End footnote. The name of Foxborn is synonymous with unselfish devotion on behalf of subject races which cannot protect themselves. But I shall not, I feel sure, be causing offense if I submit that the Aborigines Protection Society is not a public body in the enjoyment of very wide popular support. It is respected by a number and disliked probably by a much larger number. As for myself, I was known only in a restricted circle through occasional signed articles on African questions which I used at the time to contribute to the Pall Mall Gazette chiefly. The odds were therefore severe. We had against us a king who was a multimillionaire with a then misguided nation at his back and all that this implies, and a government at home which did not want to be bothered, whose policy had been a policy of silence. It was perfectly natural for the public to approach the terrible charges launched at the Congo state with a skepticism, proof against all but the most overwhelming demonstration. That skepticism had to be overcome, and that demonstration made step by step, by slow, laborious, and painful degrees, while the forces at work to stop it grew in activity and unscrupulousness with its progression. The marvel is that headway was made at all. That success attended these efforts is owing in the main to the British press, for whose support I have been personally indebted beyond words, especially when the campaign of charges, innuendo, and vilification against myself was set on foot by King Leopold's Press Bureau, and editorial offices were flooded with the most extraordinary fabrications concerning a humble and unknown individual, dragged by the force of circumstances into a notoriety that was anything but welcome. Begin footnote. I was the head of, or the agent of, a syndicate of rubber merchants, jealous because the rubber from the Congo went to Antwerp instead of Liverpool, 
The tools of British government, which masked territorial ambition behind my agitation, a vulgar adventurer with a shady past seeking notoriety, the possessor of large sums of money wherewith I bribed witnesses to manufacture stories of atrocity, an unsuccessful blackmailer, etc., etc. End footnote. Consul Casement's famous report published early in 1904 and the mass of missionary evidence which was then coming to hand suggested to my mind the formation of an association which could concentrate its energies upon one direct and simple issue, that of thrusting the Congo question to the front rank among international problems in urgent need of solution, and which could on those lines not only combine all individual effort, but appeal to a wide public on a platform divorced from politics, creed, or even nationality. This association came into being with Earl Bocamp, its first president, in April 1904. Footnote. Mr. Alfred Emmett, Mr. John Holt, Dr. Guinness, head of the Congo Balalo Mission, and two other personal friends gave me their early and invaluable assistance. End footnote. This plain and unvarnished recapulation of events will, I venture to hope, suffice with the summarized evidence in Section 2 to clear up some points which have remained obscure to the majority. End of Section 4. The History from Behind the Veil. Recorded by Miguel Rich.